0: And welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism. Polylog is our attempt to find praise and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Monday, July 11th, 2022, and today I'm excited to bring you the final Solving Guns chapter. This is it, our last part of this 15 part series that we were sharing first with our Polylog listeners, a project that I've spent years on. The goal is to examine every form of gun violence, to go deep on the reasons why people own guns in the first place, and to find solutions without passing gun control laws. Whether you love guns or hate them, my hope is that the solutions here can unite those in the left and the right behind one goal, to save lives, something we can all agree on. You can find this project with written versions and some videos online at solvingguns.org. You can also find access to the 2,000-plus pages of facts and statistics that I leaned on for this project. As I mentioned, this is Part 15, the last part. And next week, you can expect Naomi and myself back on the mics to talk about Polylog 2.0. But until then, let's finish things off here in our conversation about reducing gun violence by changing some things in Hollywood. So, let's begin. So, how can we reduce the prevalence of gun violence in films? Guns can be in film and not be violent. That's an important point to consider. A gun hanging on the wall of a hunting lodge, a gun carried on the belt of a police officer, a gun actually used in sports shooting, guns in the frame but not framing a shot in violence, not directed against another person. But this type of use is the exception more than it is the rule, and gun violence absolutely rules our modern film entertainments. In fact, gun violence in film is on the rise. There are more guns in the movies today than there have ever been, and they're no longer limited to violent, R-rated movies. More and more, we see guns in PG-13 and PG-rated films. In fact, when the PG-13 rating was first introduced, these movies, PG-13 ones, had no more gun violence than you'd find in a G or PG-rated film. But today, they have as much or more gun violence than R-rated films, according to a study in the journal Pediatrics. And that's a problem for two important reasons. First, as you might suspect, portrayals of gun violence lead to more gun violence. It's a scientific fact, one we talked about in our last episode. So any increase in any dimension is an issue. Second, those under the age of 17 are at a prime age to be, well, primed with brand messaging. They are, by their nature, impressionable every marketer knows that this is the age when people choose their loyalties. Are you a Pepsi person or a Coke person, a Hunt's ketchup person or a Heinz, a Colgate or a Crest? What you are exposed to and ultimately choose at the age of 15 will very likely be your beverage, your condiment, your toothpaste of choice when you're 25, 35, 45. So with Violence trickling down from R movies and into PG-13 and even PG movies, it leaves you wondering what does qualify a movie for an R rating today. You probably think R movies would be reserved for just the most gory of gory violence, but violence hardly enters into the equation. Today, most R-rated movies are rated R for one reason and one reason only, sex. There's a real perversity to this. Ratings are there, after all, to protect children from exposure to material that is not appropriate. And yet, sex is an activity that every person can be expected to engage in at some point or another. Violence, on the other hand, particularly gun violence, is an activity that we would hope most people never engage in. How is it, then, that we sanction violence for young and impressionable minds, but segregate sex? We approve of showing to children something that they should never do and disapprove of showing something that they one day will and should do. It's absurd. The distinction is even more concerning when you consider how destructive it is for public health. If young people don't see sex as a real extension of healthy relationships, filmed as one part of a whole, they may only be exposed to it in part, through pornographic portrayals that are unrealistic, self-focused, and fetishized, divided completely from the whole portrayal of healthy relationships. Just consider it. We show young people healthy relationships in movies, but without sex. And they access sexual content in pornography, but without the healthy relationships. And we just assume they'll find a way to combine these two? I don't think so. If the only sex that young people are exposed to is pornography, they're going to have a very hard time building healthy sexual relationships. And we wonder why sexual violence is still so horribly prevalent on college campuses. Our norms around sex and violence need to both change with more healthy portrayals of sex, and fewer everyday portrayals of violence. So, let's change it. Let's take the MPAA rating system, the Motion Picture Association of America, and let's turn it on its head. Let's say simply, if you show a certain level of gun violence in your movie, your movie gets an R rating. And if you happen to have sex appear in your movie, maybe that's perfectly appropriate for a PG-13 audience. This might seem like madness, but it virtually exists already, not here, but in Great Britain. To receive an 18 rating in Great Britain, 18 meaning it's appropriate for ages 18 and up, a movie is judged on this criteria, quote, where material or treatment appears to the British Board of Film Classification to risk harm to individuals or, through their behavior, to society. For example, a detailed portrayal of violent or dangerous acts, or of illegal drug use, which may cause harm to public health or morals." This seems all very reasonable, to base the rating on the amount of material that would risk harm to individuals or society. And reasonable is what the British Board of Film Classification is all about. They reason through everything. Their guide is 40 pages long and thoughtfully laid out. Here's their thinking on sex. Quote, The portrayal of sexual activity can range from kissing to detail of unsimulated sex. The normalization of overtly sexualized behavior is a concern at the junior categories. The classification system allows progressively stronger portrayals of sexual behavior as the categories rise. Sex works, works whose primary purpose is sexual arousal or stimulation, will normally only be passed at the adult categories. Sex works which only contains sex, which may be simulated, will usually be passed at 18. The R18 category is suitable for sex works containing clear images of real sex, strong fetish material, sexually explicit animated images, or other very strong sexual images. R18 video works may be supplied only in licensed sex shops, which no one under 18 may enter. Our 18 films may be shown only in specially licensed cinemas. We will apply these guidelines in relation to sex to the same standard regardless of sexual orientation of the activity portrayed. End quote. These guidelines are reasonable because every few years they update the guidelines. Update them based on conversations with social scientists, parents, policymakers, and the public at large. Oh, and artists and filmmakers. They have a voice in that as well. Want to know what they think about violence? Well, here it is. Quote Works which feature the following are likely to receive higher classifications portrayal of violence as a normal solution to problems, heroes who inflict pain and injury, callousness towards victims, the encouragement of aggressive attitudes, characters taking pleasure in pain or humiliation, the glorification or glamorization of violence. End quote. Contrast all of this with the MPAA, the rating system we have here in America. Here's what they say about their thinking on gun violence. Oh, wait, sorry. There was a pause there. let 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 me read that again. There, there you go. Pretty clear, isn't it? Here's their thinking on sex. Okay, yes, I did it again. Sorry. There was nothing there. But the sad fact is the MPAA doesn't release its thinking on any of these issues. And my sense of it is that they don't release that thinking because they don't think about it all that much. I mean, you have to dig pretty deep into their website to even get an idea of what their ratings even mean. The MPAA's process is, to say the least, a bit convoluted. First, it's worth noting that they make a pretty penny on the rating scheme. Big-budget movies have to pay $25,000 just to get a rating. Even independent filmmakers, filmmakers on a budget, like the budget I had for this recording. A budget of zero, that is. Even I'd be charged $2,500 to get reviewed. In 2016, 736 movies were theatrically released in U.S. cinemas. All had ratings, because pretty much every major theater chain refuses to show a movie without a rating. So if we just take the average between their highest and lowest charge, the MPAA made more than $10 million on the ratings game, probably at least 10 million. I don't begrudge them their money, but for that money, filmmakers should absolutely demand a more transparent process, and moviegoers should demand a more thoughtful one. The thinking the MPAA does and there must be some thinking behind their movie rating regimen, the thinking seems to come from random, everyday reviewers, a panel of people that's supposed to reflect average moviegoers who are parents in America. But just who these people are, how informed they are about childhood development, and the prejudices they may have for or against sex or violence is completely obscured from public view. Now, it may be obscured, but it still has serious public consequences. This panel has become more and more comfortable with gun violence while maintaining staunch conservatism when it comes to sex. To understand the full impact, you have to understand how important the PG-13 rating is in movies today. Interestingly, it's only about 30 years old. Before 1984, there was just G, PG, and R. It was actually Steven Spielberg who lobbied for a middle ground rating after the uproar over a beating heart being extracted in the PG-rated Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Thus, the 13 rating was established, and quickly went on to become the industry standard, the goalpost to reach. Why? Because that teenage audience is powerful beyond their years. While the ages of 12 to 17 are just 8% of the U.S.-Canada population, they make up 15% of frequent movie-going audiences, those who go to the movies once a month or more. Nowadays, those aged 12 to 17 purchase about $1.5 billion in tickets at the box office each year. If you look at the average row of seats in a movie theater, there's a teenager in every seventh seat. The top 10 highest-grossing films of all time eight were rated PG-13. That's because even if a studio has a movie packed with sex and gore, they'll often cut out as much of the offending material as they can to squeak by with that PG-13 rating. It's well worth it to broaden the audience and the ticket sales. So you see, if we managed to change the MPAA rating criteria, we could change the movies. And we could change lives. The U.S. Surgeon General calculated that if they could make the appearance of a cigarette in the movies an instant R rating, that is, get cigarettes out of all future G, PG, and PG-13 movies, they could actually save a million lives that otherwise would have been smoking cancer deaths. If we can collect enough data and get the calculation right, we can make a similar case when it comes to guns. The case that removing just half of the guns from G, PG, and PG-13 films could save some thousands of lives. The data isn't there yet to make such a statement, but just because the data isn't there yet doesn't mean the difference isn't there. It is there. We only need to discover it. What should the MPAA do then? First, they need to get with the program and make their scoring methodology clear and public. They also need to take a page from the British system to base this scoring on science, not just the gut feeling of vaguely selected parents. And they need to update their scoring system on a regular basis. When it comes to guns, the MPAA should increase their standards around violence in general, and gun violence in particular. And they should make the prevalence of guns a meaningful metric, something that could raise a rating higher. To do this, they'll need better metrics. And hopefully, the gun promotion score suggested in the last episode will do just that. If they don't trust that scorekeeping, they could build their own internal measurement system. If the MPAA won't do this, if they insist on staying just the way they are, perhaps work could be done to convince movie theaters to adopt a new rating system, either by expanding the British system, which seems far more modern and conscientious than the MPAA, or maybe we start up a new rating system, one that takes the best of the British and applies it to American audiences. After all, if you can't convince those in power to change, you have to challenge them for that power. Outcompete, outman, outnumber, outplan. But it doesn't stop at ratings. What more can we do? To answer that, all we have to do is look to the movies, not Hollywood movies, but Bollywood. India's film business is booming. It makes about 1500 movies annually. Compare that to Hollywood, which releases about 700 films a year. Hollywood's ticket sales exceed those in America. Maybe because it's so huge, it's become a huge opportunity for other big businesses to get their products front and center, even when those products might pose a public health hazard. Guns pose that hazard, but in India, the example worth looking at is around another dangerous product, tobacco. In 2003, India banned all tobacco advertising. But it didn't ban product placement in movies or TV. By 2005, literally 9 out of 10 films in the Hindi language depicted tobacco use. Smoking by leading characters in the movies had gone up more than 20% in a little over a year. And nearly half of all smoking incidents were branded with a particular company's product. What had happened? Tobacco businesses threw their marketing budgets into the only place they could, the movies. So, the government of India thought back. In doing so, they established a series of creative methods for informing the public of dangerous products in film, all of them ideas that could be applied to gun violence here in America. Here are some of those ways that they did it. If a major character is shown smoking, the actor depicting the character records a video disclaimer telling the audience how harmful tobacco use can be to one's health. Any showing of older movies with tobacco products must be accompanied by a 30-second anti-tobacco health spot. The spot, a TV ad, is shown before the movie or TV show, in the middle, or at the end. I know that middle part sounds disruptive, but apparently intermissions are still a thing in India. Also, for older movies, when the tobacco is actually used in a scene, such as a character smoking, there is a health warning that pops up on the bottom of the screen and hangs there for the entire scene of tobacco use. Now, for newer movies and TV shows, the ratings agency comes in. Producers have to explain to India's Central Board of Film Certification why they put the tobacco in the movie. They have to provide, quote, an acceptable editorial justification, end quote. In addition to the anti-tobacco health spots, there's also a static warning shown in the beginning and middle of those films, kind of like the anti-piracy notice. Imagine these same measures surrounding guns and gun violence. Sure, it would be an uphill battle, but surely some of these could be implemented. I mean, imagine this. For the gun promotion score, what if an actor could improve his or her score by recording a video disclaimer? What if a studio could improve theirs by showing an anti-gun violence ad before the film? And if the MPAA adopts gun violence as a ratings criteria, what if they required a film to show the static disclaimer in order to get a PG-13 rating for gun use? Otherwise, an instant R. I really doubt we'd find support for putting a message at the bottom of the screen whenever a character has a gun. That's a bit offensive to me, actually. Obtrusive. But it's an idea, and maybe it works. Again, we need more good research on some of these more disruptive measures. Others, though, those other measures are easy. A written disclaimer, that wouldn't be disruptive. Even a 30-second anti-violence spot. 30 seconds is nothing compared to what we have to sit through in theaters these days. Trailer after trailer, and then the bit about silencing your cell phone, about buying concessions and purchasing gift certificates in the lobby. The 30-second ads don't even have to focus on violence every time. They could be about safe gun handling and storage informational, educational, or even about alternatives to buying guns for home protection, like what we talked about in this program. Or about ways to keep your gun at the firing range or sports center, rather than home. Or what about a reminder to audience members that if a friend or loved one is going through depression, to help them find a way to remove guns from their home temporarily. Remember, though, the idea here isn't just to send messages to the audience about a movie that's already been made. It's to introduce a bit of friction to the process of making movies with guns in the first place. Right now, if you're a writer or producer, guns are a no-brainer. But if putting guns in your movie means you'll have to write a letter to the film review agency about why you're using guns, if you'll have to put a message before your movie, or get your actor to film an anti-violence testimonial, you might think twice before reaching for that easy trope. Maybe it's not so easy after all. Let's make that a hard decision. Yeah, maybe it's not just the actor who should be asked to film the testimonial, but the producers themselves. If producers can get up on stage to accept the Academy Award for Best Picture, they can sit down to record a message about gun safety. Just imagine how annoying that'll be. And to have to do a new one for each production, every movie or TV show you work on. Annoying as hell. Annoying is good. Annoying is sometimes the point. But it's not the only point. It's not enough to punish filmmakers for putting guns in their movies. We have to find ways to help them along, to get them to understand and be excited about cutting guns out and putting something else in. Here's how. First, let's invite writers and directors to actually defend themselves with guns. If they think these tools are so effective in the movies, let's see just how effectively they can handle them in a real-life scenario. We take a simulated environment, at a school or movie theater or warehouse, and drop our filmmakers into the fray with a gun, either paintball or laser-based, something safe but something that feels real. The inspiration? a segment by The Daily Show that challenged the NRA trademark line, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. The result? When the writer or director or actor step out, they'll recalibrate their thinking on just how useful a gun is in a dangerous situation. That's the first goal, to raise some doubts about guns. The second is to introduce the idea of alternatives. Here, we should invite filmmakers, including actors, writers, producers, and directors, to a space where they can see and handle alternative weapons stun guns, tasers, pepper guns, non lethal but effective in new and exciting ways. But handling them is only the beginning. For writers and directors, we show them all the interesting effects of those weapons. Imagine a character, our hero, surrounded by thugs who, rather than shoot, hit our character with strings of electric tasers. How does the character fight through it? How do they get out? Or imagine someone hit with a pepper gun right in the face, blinded and huffing for air, but still needing to balance across a narrow bridge to make it to the other side. Or think of a character who, rather than carrying a gun, infiltrates a heavily guarded warehouse with only a handheld stun gun, shocking and incapacitating guards left and right. The possibilities could be endless, a whole new dimension of features and story-bending characteristics to explore. Likewise for the actors, who can be challenged to act out some of these complex emotional scenarios. How do you play someone who is just blinded with the chemical cocktail of a pepper gun? How do you play through the slow, 20-minute climb out of blindness and labored breathing? Or, what about a character wakened in the middle of the night by a screaming home security alarm? Think of the complex acting challenge as you try to discover the cause, All the while, the alarm blares, and sirens call in the distance. How much more interesting are these scenarios than those we've seen played again and again around gunfire? This of course looks at alternatives to guns as props for action, suspense, and adventure. But maybe guns aren't just props in the story. Maybe for some of these filmmakers, guns are the story. Well, fine, but let's make it a true story then. Here, we invite filmmakers to a workshop that connects them with real people whose lives have been affected by guns. The workshop should frame the realities of guns today. Most of them are held for home or personal protection, not to commit crimes. Most of gun violence is suicide, not homicide. And guns are used every day for totally nonviolent ends, in sports that serve as meaningful hobbies for people of all walks of life. Invite filmmakers to meet these people who enjoy sports and to hear their story. Invite them to meet people whose lives have been affected by gun suicide and people who are still struggling with depression. Invite them to learn about the real-life story of homicide in this country, of the lack of opportunity facing young men who carry guns, and of the families at the highest risk for domestic violence. Invite these filmmakers to tell a truer story of guns in this country. Not just because it's true, but because it offers a compelling backdrop against which to frame their art. Incredibly, we might actually be able to get the NRA and gun manufacturers to support this last part. How? It seems crazy, but the NRA and gun manufacturers don't approve of excess gun violence either. I know that it's easy to paint them all as the enemy, but that's not only unproductive, it's inaccurate. A few years ago, the head of the NRA, Wayne LaPierre, who's had a lot of really crazy headlines lately, had this to say about guns in film. He said, quote, folks, more than anybody else, it's the Hollywood media elites who are responsible for dosing our kids with reckless, gratuitous, irresponsible gunplay every hour of every day they turn on that TV, end quote. Okay, if the NRA is really against movies that show reckless, gratuitous, irresponsible gunplay, then let's enlist their help in a campaign to reduce that gunplay on screen. Let's ask them to join us in these efforts, join us in these workshops, to help show filmmakers what guns are really about, what alternatives they can find to fuel their action sequences, what the true world of gun violence involves, and what responsible ownership and use looks like. Gun manufacturers seem to agree. For example, take Rolf Aryabach, a licensing consultant who works on product integration for gun manufacturers. He said, quote, a policeman coming home and locking up his gun in a gun safe so his family can't get to it. His kids can't get to it. That's the holy grail. Gun manufacturers aren't looking to show people being killed, end quote. There are so many reasons why Hollywood doesn't trust gun lovers, and so many reasons why gun lovers don't trust the elites of Hollywood. But trust is irrelevant. When both sides agree, and they do, we all do, we want art and entertainment that challenges and excites. That, as NRA President LaPierre has said, helps us, quote, get away from it all, end quote. But we also agree that film is a powerful medium, and it can send a powerful message. When I was in college, I remember reading about a study on the power of film. It put kids in front of a TV screen. On the screen was an open bag of popcorn. When researchers asked the kids what would happen if they turned the TV upside down, you know what they said? The popcorn will fall out of the bag. Even for adults, when the TV is turned upside down, it's hard to keep the popcorn in the bag. So let's close that bag on the screen a little bit. Let's put a lid on some of the violence so that when life turns upside down, less of that violence spills out. So that's it for this 15 part discussion on reducing gun violence. Thank you to everyone who has been here the entire time and for those who just dropped in. Next week, we'll begin Polylog 2.0 and I'm excited to invite, or I should say, welcome Naomi back to her microphone. Until then, if you have any thoughts or feedback, you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at beastitle. You can tweet at Naomi at SotoNaomi underscore. And you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk with you again next week.